Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you this morning. Just wanted to reiterate a couple of the announcements that were mentioned earlier in case you missed it, but uh, we're having a Good Friday service here this Friday, the 15th, so we want to invite you to come out for that. Families are welcome. We're going to share a light meal together and then spend some time in the Word, in prayer, in communion, in worship. So that's happening this Friday. And then I wanted to mention as well the annual business meeting for the church is coming up in a couple of weeks. It'll be on the 24th of April. So if you're a member, you will be receiving very soon uh, the budget and some other information uh, pertaining to that, that meeting. So the trustees and elders have been working really hard getting all of that, that information put together. So that'll be coming out in your email soon. Now, over the last uh, few decades, a lot of emphasis has been put uh, on, on this idea of walking, walking 10,000 steps a day. Have you heard of this? So medical experts, fitness experts, people in the fitness industry are pushing this idea of getting in your 10,000 steps, okay? Now, there's been some debate, of course, about what the optimal number of steps really is. Some people say it may be a little less than 10,000. Some people think it might be more. But the reality is everybody agrees exercise is good for you, right? We need to get in our steps every day to lower stress, to get our you know, cardiovascular health going a little bit, uh, meeting weight loss goals, all of that stuff. So 10,000 steps, that's, that's the idea. Now, when our family lived over in Europe, it was really easy for us to get in 10,000 steps a day. Our car was usually parked a few blocks from our apartment, so even getting to our car required walking. Okay, our kids would walk to school, they would walk home for lunch, they'd walk back to school, they'd walk home again in the evening, we'd walk to the bank, we'd walk to the post office, even public transit required walking to get to the bus stop or the metro, that sort of thing. Now, since moving back to the States, it's been a little harder to get in my 10,000 steps. I have to really work at it to make it part of my, my fitness routine. You know, Americans live in their cars, right? We can pass an entire day and not really walk anywhere, other than maybe to the refrigerator or that sort of thing. But, but the idea here is getting in that exercise, right? 10,000 steps. Now understand my point this morning is not to give you a pep talk on fitness. Although I would say that God has given us a body, a mind, and a soul, and we want to take care of those things, right? We want to take care of the body he's given us. We want to develop our minds through, through reading, through study, through critical thinking, and develop our soul, our spirit, through time in the word, in worship, in prayer. But here's really the point this morning. The idea is to draw your attention to an important parallel that we see in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, and the Apostle Paul on three occasions tells us to walk. He tells us to walk in love, in verse 2. He tells us to walk in the light, in verse 8. And then we'll see in verse 15, he tells us to walk in wisdom. The idea is to walk, to walk with our Lord. So how do we get in those 10,000 spiritual steps every day? How do we walk in the love, in the light, and in the wisdom of our Lord? 
We're going to find that out by looking at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. So it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study this word, to learn from you, to walk with you. Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us this morning as we study this text would you make the meaning of this text clear to us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you help us to put your word into practice for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we have worked our way through the book of Ephesians over the last couple of months, we have learned to really sit in the presence of God, to sit under the teaching of our Lord. Somebody reminded me recently this idea of sitting with the Lord, sitting under his teaching before we learn to stand in worship, right? So we want to study our God. We want to get our theology right so that through doxology, through worship of the Lord, we grow in faith and knowledge of him. And then finally, we learn to walk, right? To walk in obedience to the Lord as we worship him. And so the study of God we study God so, so that we can worship him. In fact, we study God as worship of him, and we worship God through obedience to him. 
So three times in this passage, Paul tells us to walk, right? He tells us to walk. And you see, the question isn't really where we are walking. What's more important here is how we are walking. So in the context of Ephesians 5, the walk itself is really what matters. God wants us to watch our walk, to check our form, right? To make sure we are getting our steps in, those 10,000 spiritual steps, right? To stick close by the side of Jesus Christ, imitating God as dearly loved children, as we read in verse 1, to be imitators of God. So how do we walk? Well, the first thing we see in this passage is that we are to walk in love, the love of God. Look at verse 2. Notice that true and pure divine love is contrasted here with the abuses of carnal lust, carnal love seen in sexual immorality. See, the love of God is marked by self-sacrifice, by purity, by goodness, by genuine care for his people. And the end of this chapter, actually in a few weeks we'll be looking at uh, this passage that talks about the husband and the wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so already Paul is preparing us for that, this love of, of Christ that, that was self-sacrificial. He gave his life for his church. So marriage is really kind of a metaphor for the love of God, for his people. So we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks, but already here Paul is talking about the love of God, a love that includes tenderness and gentleness that nurtures his people. So after Paul calls the church to walk in love, he immediately shifts focus to warn the church against false expressions of love that manifest themselves in sexual immorality. So let's take a look at verses 3 through 6. Now there are two ways we can very easily take sexual sin too lightly. We can treat God's design for human sexuality with contempt by engaging in what the text calls sexual immorality. The Greek term here is porneia, from which we derive the word pornography or fornication. And that's really what Paul is talking about. Fornication, premarital sex, adultery, general whoredom, all of this stuff really just fits in this word, okay? That's what Paul's talking about. Sex outside of the covenant relationship between one man and one woman. That's the idea. So verse 3 is concerned with undermining God's design for our human sexuality. But the other way we take sexual sin too lightly is that we can treat God's design for human sexuality as a mere joke. Okay? Foolish talk, coarse joking, vulgarity. And this is what Paul is referring to in verse 4. Thus, we mock God's design for human sexuality. Now, understand that the heart of the problem here is really the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where he addresses this idea of lust, right? Um, he who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart, so he says that both the lustful heart and the adulterous act are violations of the holiness of God. Violations to the holiness to which we are called. So his point is that we shouldn't think we are off the hook because we've only had a little bit of lust. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that all have sinned, all sin is deserving of judgment, and all sins of a repentant person can be forgiven by a gracious and loving God. 
But here's the thing. I think we need to have a balanced view of the nature and effects of sin because the problem is that we sometimes downplay the gravity of certain kinds of sexual sin because we think that, well, since sin is sin, then a lustful glance is just as bad as serial adultery. It doesn't really matter. It's all the same thing. Now understand, the point Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount is that we need to look at the heart. We, we certainly do, and that's where we begin. But this doesn't mean that there are not varying levels of consequences to various kinds of sins in our life. We have to take these matters seriously. Now to understand, to understand how God views sexual sin, it is actually helpful to go back to the Old Testament to go back to the, the book of Leviticus, to go back to the law of God and what he says about these things. Now understand, even though we do not any longer live under the civil laws, because Jesus came to fulfill the civil law, to, to, to fulfill all the law, we can still learn from the civil laws of the Old Testament. Okay, we're not going out and stoning anybody, okay? We need to understand that we don't live under the civil laws of, of ancient Israel. But there's still things, like I said, that we can glean from these laws. There are things we can learn from the moral law of God. So, we need to take a look at what he says in the Old Testament. So when we examine God's wisdom on matters of human sexuality, we, we find that there really are several different categories of sexual practices outlined in the Old Testament. First, there are practices that are considered unnatural, unlawful, and under capital condemnation in the Old Testament, okay? Unnatural, unlawful, and under capital condemnation. And those were things like homosexual practices, bestiality, that kind of stuff. There was a second category of sexual sins or sexual practices, and these were considered natural between a man and a woman, but unlawful and under capital condemnation. So things like, uh, like, adultery, for example, because it was the breaking of covenant vows, okay? And God was a God of covenant, and the marriage covenant was an expression of God's covenant with his people. So you have that category of, of sexual practices. Then there were practices that were natural, but considered unlawful and uh, under condemnation, not capital condemnation, but under discipline, so premarital sexual relations were considered in this category. There might be a fine or some sort of slap on the wrist kind of penalty for that sort of, of thing, but it was under, under condemnation by God. And then the fourth category were those things that were considered both natural and lawful, and that was a sexual relationship within the marriage covenant. So you see how these things are kind of divided up in the Old Testament. And so my point is this, how God responds to different human behaviors is something we do need to pay attention to. To suggest that homosexuality or adultery are not a big deal because sin is sin and everybody sins, that doesn't really accurately represent the severity of these sins and how they damage the individual in Scripture, how they damage families, how they damage children, how they damage society. At the same time, we don't want to trivialize things like coarse joking, lewdness, lust, these kinds of things. These are dangerous because sin ultimately corrodes our heart. It corrodes our soul. It leads to death. God is calling us to watch our walk. Women, 
that guy at work who treats you so well and is always so kind and smiles at you and all of that stuff, he may look really appealing after an argument with your husband, right? Men, the ubiquitous images of women with ample mammary material in the ads and in the gym and in these places, that can lead to impure thoughts, right? Both men and women, young people, the way in which our society glorifies, sorry, glorifies and urges same-sex attraction, homosexual relationships, these kinds of things, might lead you to think you need to pursue a lifestyle that Scripture clearly condemns and that falls outside of God's design for human sexuality. We're being bombarded with this stuff. In the schools, our kids are being taught this stuff. See, our society is selling sexual chaos, and that's really what it is, sexual chaos. And many contemporary churches are buying into it because we're trying to be tolerant, we're trying to work with the society around us. But please understand that love is not what current opinions say it is. Love is what God says it is. Your expressions of love, your sexual practices, these things fall under God's authority. As a Christian, remember that you belong to God. Your sexuality belongs to God. Now imagine a scenario, if you will. Imagine you owe $1,000 to a friend. This friend has loaned you some money so that you can pay some debt or, or, or deal with something in your life. And so he's helped you out with his money. And after some time, you finally saved up the money and you're able to pay back your friend. You've got the $1,000 now to pay back this friend. But on the way to pay back your friend, you see a beautiful new 72-inch smart TV on sale for $1,000 and you decide you're going to purchase that, that television rather than go and take the money back to your friend. Now, we recognize that this is not right. It's not a right use of that money that was loaned to you. You owe the money to someone else, and you don't get to choose in the matter, right? And in the same way, our, our sexuality belongs to God. Like our life, our time, our gifting, our talents, it belongs to God. We don't get to decide how we use it. God has opinions about these things, and those opinions are for our good, the good of our society. We are called to walk in divine love as imitators of God not to walk in the human perversions of love as imitators of the world. And please understand that God may not turn off improper sinful desires immediately. We all struggle with lust. Every human being, because we live in a fallen world, we struggle. We struggle with the effects of the fall, covetousness, these, these kinds of things. God may not turn that off immediately. He may not extinguish that flame overnight, but he certainly gives us opportunities to stifle the flame as he works on us and convicts us of sin and draws us close to him in repentance. Right? He helps us recognize that we are heirs to his kingdom. He helps us recognize that we are called to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So according to verse 5, those who fail to recognize and to repent of sin are outside of God's will and prove by their lack of fruit that they are not counted among God's people. This is a warning that the Apostle Paul gives us. Watch your walk. Pay attention. Are you bearing fruit for the kingdom? 
So in sum, this first section of chapter five is calling us to do love God's way, to do it the way he has called us to, walk in God's love. Understand that you're in God's grace, right? You're his beloved children, and those who are loved rightly will learn to love rightly. So we walk in love, but second, we're called to to walk in the light. Do you remember the contrast that we've explored already in this book? You were once dead, but now you're alive. You were once strangers, now you are citizens. You were once old, now you are new. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, therefore, as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Light exposes wickedness, immorality, and lies. Now, light is a double-edged sword in many ways. It can be a good thing in our lives, but sometimes it's a very uncomfortable thing as well. Now, imagine you're lost in a cave, groping around in the darkness, trying to find your way through this cave. The walls seem to be closing in around you. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. But then suddenly you see a pinpoint of light in in the distance. In a sense, uh, you feel relief, right? In that moment, there's nothing more comforting than that light. Or imagine being lost in a dark wood in the wilderness. The sun has set, you're running low on water, you're wandering around in the mountains, you can't see a thing. Darkness, night sets in around you. But imagine hearing a rescue helicopter overhead and squinting in the light of that search lamp as it shines down on you. Think about the feeling of comfort you would have as that light shines down. The light has come, right? You've been found. In that moment, there's nothing more comforting than the light. Au contraire, imagine you're a thief breaking into somebody's home, breaking into a store. You're lurking in the shadows, keeping to the shadows, keeping to the dark places, trying to go through that that house or that store to, to, to steal. Suddenly, the door opens. The light is switched on. You've been found, right? The light shines in, and in that moment, there's nothing more distressing than the light. See, verses 11 and 12 remind us to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Light exposes our wickedness. The light of God's word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, these things comfort us with the truth. Likewise, they startle us with the truth. We talked a little bit about truth last week. Truth can be a shocking thing at times. It can be a a repulsive thing at times. It upsets us. It can be a comforting, a good thing at times. There are a lot of different manifestations of truth. But look at verses 13 and 14. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes all things visible. The light shows us our way to the truth. It shows us our way to the truth, even the uncomfortable truth. Now, what would happen in our marriage if we told the truth? If we were to confess sin, share our concerns, deal with past issues, with hurt? What would happen in our marriage if we told the truth? What would happen in our churches if we were to tell the truth, if we were to take ownership of mistakes and damage that has been done to people by people? 
if we were to lovingly bring issues into the light, what would happen? What would happen in our broader community if Christians were to walk in the truth, in the light, and shine goodness, righteousness, and truth into the dark places around us? See, we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's like a skyscraper made of of glass and metal with the sun reflecting off from it, right? We are the light of the world. We reflect the light of Jesus Christ. And honestly, walking in the light is much easier than walking in the darkness. Are we getting in our 10,000 steps in the light? So we walk in love, we walk in light, and the third thing we see in this passage is to walk in wisdom. We walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Now, the contrast of verses 15 through 17 is that of wisdom and foolishness. So the kind of wisdom and foolishness Paul is talking about here is linked to whether we understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the will of the Lord in this context? Now, the rest of the book of Ephesians actually tells us what the will of the Lord is. We need to go back to chapters 1 through, through 4, really, to understand the will of the Lord. And there are two types of divine will that I want us to pay attention to. And I've outlined these in the bulletin. If you have your bulletin, too, the, the definitions are there. But the first kind of will that, that biblical scholars and theologians will sometimes talk about is the decorative will of God. Or another way to put it is the declarative will of God. And this really just refers to the decree of God. That the things God wants to take place will take place. His will will be done. Okay? And we see this in Scripture. And this is essentially, this is a kind of a complex metaphysical concept dealing with, with issues of causal relationships and agency and all of that. We're not going to get into all of that detail. I'm happy to discuss that with you in the lobby after the sermon. But the idea of the decorative will of God is that God has declared things to be. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Okay, this is the will of God. Um, he chose us. He, he, he predestined us. This kind of stuff. The decorative will of God. So if you want to know what the will of God is, it's this. You are called to be his precious child in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are called to be his precious child in Christ. You are set apart for him. So if you are a Christian, you are called to walk in his will, right? To be a part of who, who God is, what he has done for you. To be a part of his kingdom, his family, Walking in wisdom is walking in the wonder of your salvation. But there's a, another type of will of God, and this is known as the preceptive will of God or the moral will of God. Okay, this is the, the will of God that we see in his laws, in his commandments. So in contrast to the decorative will of God, the preceptive will of God is an ethical concept. It has to do with our morality, how we live. And Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, these chapters are filled with this preceptive will of God. Do this, don't do that. Walk in this way, don't walk in that way. Obey God in this way. Avoid these things. Rid yourself of these practices. That's the moral will or the preceptive will of God. And here's how it works. Now, I might tell my children that we're going to go spend our whole Saturday, our whole day off, visiting great-aunt Matilda, okay? 
my decorative will is that we're going to go visit Great Aunt Matilda. You're getting in the car. You're going with us. We're going to spend the day with Great Aunt Matilda. You don't have a choice in the matter. This is what we're doing today. Okay? Now, my moral will, my perceptive will, is that my children have a good attitude, that they're polite, that they uh, converse with her, that they, the, they do the things that we expect of them in, in that kind of setting, right? Now, I may have some, some influence over their, their behavior, okay, with, with my moral will, but it requires some work on their part as well. So the point here is that there are different aspects of God's will that, that represent what he has done for us, and there are aspects of his will that require us to relate to him in different kinds of ways. There's a relational aspect to this. God is sovereign, but he invites us into this relationship of obedience, you see. When we know who God is and what God has declared us to be, we are better situated to know how to live in his will. Knowing the will of God has less to do with making those big decisions in our lives. Now, these things are still very important. Do I take that job? Do I buy that car? Do I refinance my house? These kinds of things. These do fall under the will of God, but the kind of will of God that Paul is specifically talking about here has more to do with being close to God in worship, being close to God in obedience, to make good use of the resources with which God has resourced us, to make the most of every opportunity, the time he has given us because the days are evil. See, if we want to walk in wisdom, we need to keep in step with the Spirit to stay close to God. So we walk in love, we walk in light, we walk in wisdom. And here's the point of all of this. Keep walking, right? Keep walking. Get your spiritual exercise. Get in those 10,000 steps a day. By the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are invited to take up our cross and to walk with Christ, to follow him. See, the invitation to put your faith in Jesus Christ is an invitation to walk with him. So I want to encourage us, let's get in those 10,000 steps, and there are several ways we can do that. Okay, the first thing is, is we need to find an exercise partner. Okay, the Holy Spirit is with us to keep us accountable, but God also calls us into relationships of accountability within the church, and that's why here at Bergen Park Church, we emphasize often the, the importance of growth groups, of small groups of one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationships, Bible studies. There are ample opportunities to get into those kinds of, of accountability relationships, right? Find an exercise partner. Find an exercise routine, right? Read your Bible, pray every day. It's important. Start your day by, by praising your Lord, getting into his word. Find ways to make worship a part of your life, whether it's listening to Christian music, whether it's, it's, it's praying, whether it's in the Word. I would imagine we'd want to do all three of those things, but be in, in the Word. Be close to God. Have a good exercise routine. Parents have asked me at times, what can I do to help feed my children in the Word? And I would suggest simply open the Bible. Now, I know there are a lot of good devotional books out there, but parents, simply open the Bible and start reading with your kids. Find a time during the day, maybe a meal time or before bed or when you get up in the morning, and just open the Word. Go to a book like maybe a gospel, some sort of narrative that's easy for the kids to follow, and just start reading a few paragraphs 
Read the Bible with your kids. Ask them basic questions. What does this tell us about God? What do we learn here about Jesus? But get into those habits. Get into those rhythms. Find an exercise routine. And then set an exercise goal. Spiritual exercise, we need goals, right? To know God, to worship God. That should really be ultimately the goal. John 17, 3, where Jesus is praying for his church, praying for his disciples, that they would know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So know the goals. See, the God who saves us also equips us. The cross that transforms us also spurs us on to obedience. The Christ who walked among us invites us to walk with him. So again, the question is, are we getting in our 10,000 spiritual steps? I want to urge us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, for this word. It's a difficult word, considering the ways in which we have sinned against you, the lustful thoughts, the things we have coveted, the impurities in us, Lord. We are fallen people and we recognize that, but we also recognize, Lord, that you are a good God, a God who saves by his grace, a God that desires to restore us, to restore our, our, our body, mind, and soul. We thank you for those things, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, walk with us and help us to know how to walk with you, to walk in your grace, to walk in your love, to walk in your mercy. Lord, we love you and we, th we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we want to take some time to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, communion this morning. So please pick up the uh, communion elements if you haven't done so already. The bread and the wine. This is an opportunity for us to worship our Lord. Communion is an act of worship. When we take the bread and the wine, we are essentially saying yes to Jesus. We are publicly acknowledging our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to take the communion. So we're going to begin uh, this morning with, with the bread as Jesus did. As he gathered with his disciples, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said... Take this. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after he'd taken the bread, Jesus took the cup. He took the wine. And he reminded his disciples that that wine represented his blood. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. Take this in remembrance of me. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, for his body that was broken for us, his blood that was poured out for us. Lord, we ask that as we go from here today, we would remember what you have done for us, Lord, that you have redeemed us. We are your beloved children. So, Lord, would you allow us to walk with you to be imitators of God as dearly loved children.
to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Jesus' name, amen.